is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Now, Connected to Chicago. And welcome to Connected to Chicago. Uh, we just recently saw this uh, big infrastructure bill pass, a bipartisan infrastructure bill, the first in a long time. And we're going to be talking today with Congressman Mike Quigley of the 5th Congressional District here in Illinois. Uh, Congressman, thanks for joining us on the program. $17 billion dollars for Illinois, huh? Over, uh, what, about five years? Well, it depends on how you break down the formula, but uh, it's the largest public investment we've seen in our lifetime. And that's about right. And this was a bipartisan uh, bill, right? We, we saw support from both sides of the aisle. You know, it's interesting. This, for those who were criticizing the Republicans who supported us in the House, Lindsey Graham voted for this in the Senate. Mitch McConnell, their Republican leader in the Senate, voted for it with 17 others uh, and 20 other Republicans in the House. So, uh, look, I don't know when infrastructure ever became a partisan issue. Uh, so this passed with bipartisan support, and we'd like to implement it in the same vein. I'd like to come, go through a couple of things, um, the way I've seen it written, that, that it's broken down. Um, I guess uh, the biggest share of this money is, yeah, for things like uh, uh, highways and improvements, uh, specifically, you know, federal highways here that run through Illinois, about $9.8 billion dollars. It's certainly going to put a lot of people to work, isn't it? Sure. Uh, look, I think let's look at it this way. Uh, our infrastructure, particularly in Illinois, has been getting failing grades most of our lifetime from civil engineers. At the same time, to your point, we're being outspent four to one, five to one, six to one by our economic competitors, Europe, India, China. Uh, so it's not just putting people to work, rebuilding our roads and our other transit systems. It's the ability for those improvements to help grow the economy through their life, right? I mean, look how important the, the uh, public transit system is in Chicago, the elevated, for just an example, the line to the orange line to Midway, the blue line to O'Hare. So uh, they all need improvements, uh, to say the least. Right now, the CTA has about a $14 billion state of good repair and in, um, maintenance backlog. So they'll get about $4 billion for this uh, through CTA and Metra. So that's the fourth highest investment in the nation. It's going to put a lot of people to work, but it'll keep them at work for a long time. Well, right. So not only is it for, you know, improvements and upkeep, but it sounds like there's this ambitious plan to extend the red line to 130th. Is that still kind of in the mix? Are you hearing about that? Uh, I am. Uh, you know, I'll play a bit of a role there, but I, I see my primary responsibility as to create this pool of resources for the city, state and locals to uh, draw down on. I think extending the red line makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think we need to rebuild a lot of the blue line. Uh, there are improvements that need to be made in our rolling stock with Metra, Pace, and the CTA. So you know, I'm hoping that there is a thoughtful debate uh, at the state and local level about how to best use these resources. 
but clearly extending the red line should be on that list. Okay. Uh, let's move to things like uh, the waterline problems that we've seen, uh, especially the city of Chicago, 400,000 homes with these uh, lead service lines. There is some money in this to help uh, replace those as well, right? Sure. Nationally, it's about $55 billion for America's water system. So that would include lead line removal. It would include new water. Uh, it would include funds for wastewater treatment. Uh, something that was really kicked up uh, during the Nixon administration and an important environmental issue for our whole country uh, for water quality. Uh, again, I hear a lot of different numbers being bandied about, but uh, somewhere close to $2 billion should come through Illinois for clean, safe drinking water. I know that suburbs are not immune to this either, and it is a, a big issue. Do we expect... Um maybe down the road some some further uh, programs or something to help people with with that issue uh, absolutely uh, and I, I would just remind the, your listeners that this isn't the only thing we have ongoing funding that addresses many of these issues and it's simply going to have to continue uh, I'm on the appropriations committee I am on the transport the subcommittee that funds most of these things it's called transportation, housing, and urban development. Uh, in the next Congress, uh, I am targeted to be the lead Democrat on that. So uh, I, I get the needs. And again, my job is to have these resources available, not just with this uh, mammoth once-in-a-generation opportunity, but it's an ongoing funding stream that we need to, so that we don't wait 20 years, 30 years again to do this. There's a maintenance issue on all of, our, all of our infrastructure that we need to stay on top of. And this also addresses some of this uh, green infrastructure that we've heard a lot about, um, flood mitigation money. Uh, what's the impact for us here with the, you know, relation to the Great Lakes? Sure. Uh, I mean, there's going to be an extraordinary amount of resources available in a, in a wide range. Some of that's in restoration work. Some of that's in rebuilding the shoreline um, along Lake Michigan that has been affected by this. But uh, so much of what we're doing here with uh, funding for electric vehicles, the electric grid and power infrastructure is going to address the climate change issue uh, head on. So uh, it, this shouldn't be in people's minds, you know, concrete versus green. Uh, the two go hand in hand. Which brings to mind something else. We have to rebuild our infrastructure so that it's able to handle, that it's resilient, uh, extraordinary extreme climate, right? We've seen the wildfires in the West. We've seen the severity and the number and the intensity of storms uh, across the country. Uh, so when you rebuild the bridges, when you build, rebuild uh, our roads and other systems, they have to be built with the realization that they've got to take a bigger punch, that climate is going to be more extreme. You don't want to rebuild all this only to have it, you know, washed, literally washed away uh, because of climate change. So there, there are a lot of things in this bill that is now law that will rebuild our country, but it's going to do it in a way that it addresses climate change at the same time and indeed prepares for it. 
Right. Uh, you know, one of the examples is these uh, the money for these uh, electric vehicle charging stations. Um, sure. And, you know, Governor Pritzker's got this pretty ambitious plan uh, to see these cars out on the road. What do you think about the governor's plan? Um, is it is it doable? It's the right plan. It's doable if there are resources. So this infrastructure bill, best guess, will provide about $148 million to expand the EV infrastructure in Illinois. And just put it again, that in perspective, Illinois is currently about 35th in the country for uh, in judging and evaluating EV infrastructure. So the governor's right. We've got a long way to go. Um, I'm glad there's a plan. My job is, again, to draw these resources here and uh, work with the state and locals to make sure they use it in the most effective uh, means possible. Uh, I also know that, you know, we're one of the uh, largest states that uh, depends on uh, nuclear power here in Illinois. And it seems like there may be a shift kind of back to that after, you know, years of people saying, no, we need to go away, get away from that. It seems like there's some renewed interest and there's some money for that in this as well, right? Well, there's, there's a renewed interest in uh, providing nuclear energy because uh, it, it's not coal. It's, it's not, uh, it doesn't require fr- fracking. There are risks involved with every energy source, but you, we have to appreciate the fact as we address climate change, it's going to have to come from a variety of sources. Uh, clearly, the newest ones, renewables, are going to have to play the biggest role. But as we face toward this uh, carbon-free future that we're going to have to live with, uh, nuclear nuclear industry is going to play a role in that until we get to that point. And I wanted to ask you also about broadband and and the money for that. How important is it that, um, I I would think in Illinois, it's more of the, the rural areas, central southern Illinois, but maybe there's some areas up here in, in our neck of the woods that uh, really, you know, to see broadband expansion or be made available, pretty important. Sure. Uh, here's here's how I would stress this. When um, What's comparable? I mean, during the Depression, FDR didn't rebuild the existing infrastructure. One of the things he did was electrify rural America, change the country. Uh, when Eisenhower came back from the Second World War and became president, he didn't rebuild, rebuild just country roads and city roads. He built an in, interstate highway system. So uh, what's the modern equivalent of that? Uh, $65 billion for broadband infrastructure deployment. And you're right, a lot of that's going to go to rural areas. But as we learned during the pandemic, there are a lot of families, a lot of young kids, that don't have access to the internet, they don't have access to broadband, and we see how important that is during a pandemic to learn, to work, to communicate with the outside world for healthcare now, as, as again, through the pandemic, new uses uh, have come forward in, in greater amounts. So there's going to be um, dollars available in rural areas, but there are a lot of areas Chicago where additional assistance is going to make a difference in their lives. 
what happens now to that larger plan that um, some were pushing? The, the I guess it was the actual Build Back Better plan. Uh, is there a chance, does that come back up? Do, do parts of that kind of get split up and voted on separately? Or is it just kind of in a holding pattern? Uh, well, it's funny you should ask. Uh, t- today will tell a lot toward that end. Uh, and, I, and I think what I would say is I think it's still going to pass. Uh, but I'd, what I'd like people to think about when they think about Build Back Better, uh, a lot of the infrastructure dealt with physical infrastructure. But we also have to remember we have to build up the human infrastructure as well. So when you include universal pre-K for three- and four-year-olds, you're really building uh, for the future and what that's going to mean, uh, allowing for paid family leave, the only we're the only developed in the country, only developed country in the world that doesn't have it. That will actually help people get back to work. Uh, there's child nutrition programs in there, but a lot of workforce development and training. Uh, they're going to increase Pell grants that allow more people to get education they need to work in this environment. So that answer your question, I think Build Back Better is still coming. And I do think it's going to make a difference some, in some respects the same way that physical infrastructure bill will to grow the economy, reduce the deficit. And we're talking with Congressman Mike Quigley from Illinois' 5th Congressional District, which kind of includes uh, most of the north side of the city of Chicago and uh, some of the western suburbs. We've just got a couple of minutes left. And, well, Congressman, when when do we expect to vote on that? We're recording this on a Thursday, so our audience knows that. Is that something that's coming up today? It is conceivably up today. It's whether or not they get back uh, an official scoring as to the cost, the net cost on this. So we're, uh, it, it's a little like the military here at times, hurry up and wait. So it is quite possible that uh, this is something that people will look back on, or it's also possible that uh, they'll be aware that I'm, I'm here in Thanksgiving week trying to get this done. But uh, as a Cup fan, I have to remain optimistic, and I think we'll get it done today. You know, uh, I was going to ask you about, there's, there's two questions I, I always have to ask, and with you... Uh, it's going to be the Blackhawks. Um, mm-hmm. What's going on with the Blackhawks? Not too hot, but they're starting to pick up. Uh, you know, look, on the ice, uh, I think sometimes a, a change in coaching spurs people on, uh, gives them an opportunity to uh, reinvent their game, give them a, a chance to start over. And I think we've seen that with a four-game winning streak. So I'd uh, like to see that. It's uh, It's been tough. Uh, as a, a fan of the Blackhawks to see uh, what's taken place since 2010. And, uh, you know, uh, I think it's appropriate for, and important for me to, to stress that uh, Kyle Beach and others who were victims of this uh, uh, deserve our praise and support. And uh, we, we need to move forward together uh, in a lot better fashion than we have in the past. And being a politician, of course, the other question is, are you going to run for re-election? <laughs> it is, uh, my, look, we have the new maps that you see out there. It's uh, my mm-hmm. intention to announce my intentions. Um, uh, I tell folks I'm a little busy here in D.C. doing the job. So uh, uh, we'll make the formal announcement after we, uh, we pass Build Back Better and after we fund the government and raise the debt ceiling and don't crash world markets um, and do our job 
before we go home for the holidays. Last question I just want to ask you about, about uh, in terms of this big budget bill we've been talking about, um, in terms of making the U.S. or keeping the U.S. competitive, uh, is this a good step forward? You know, absolutely. If you're going to compete, you part of what you compete with are your assets. Uh, our physical assets uh, keep the economy going. It's interesting that uh, those that supported a measure like this went across the panel. They were was Democrats, Republicans, uh, but it was unions and the Chamber of Commerce. I mean, the, the, the rail industry, the trucking industry, they know this economy uh, is what moves. So that, that's why they, that's why the airlines were supportive of this. And if you don't put money into those assets and they fall, you know, we fall behind our competitors, uh, this is a big step forward to help us compete on the worldwide market. My thanks to you, Congressman, for joining us today. Anytime. Have a good Thanksgiving, everyone. And Congressman Mike Quigley of the 5th Congressional District talking about the $1 trillion-plus infrastructure bill and what Illinois' share of that will be. Up next, we have the Reporter Roundtable. You're listening to Connected to Chicago on WLS. This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. And it's time for the Reporter Roundtable as we welcome in Lynn Sweet, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for the Chicago Sun-Times, Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune, Heather Sharon of WTTW Chicago Tonight, and Greg Hines of Crane's Chicago Business. Well, this morning, it looks like the House passed President Biden's Build Back Better plan. What is the next step for this, Lynn? Where does it head now? Well, it heads to a very iffy fate in the Senate. So this Build Back Better plan is President Biden's signature social spending plan. Let me say that shorthand. It differs from the bill he signed Monday, the infrastructure plan, and that it has stuff that uh, is that passed with 13 Republicans in the House and 19 Republicans in the Senate. Uh, planes, trains, a highway funding increases, broadband. So in this social spending bill, no Republicans voted for it. You have two senators who are Democrats in the Senate who still have reservations about aspects of it, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. A lot of internal negotiation because you need all 50 Democrats to pass it. Also, because of this parliamentary technique they're using to only pass it with the mere majority, every part of that bill has to be scrubbed to make sure that it really has an impact on the budget. That's why some of the immigration provisions that Democrats wanted to have won't be in it, including a pathway to citizenship for many, not all, undocumented citizens in the United States. And so what's the chances? What does it look like as it goes into the Senate? Uh, I think it's reasonable that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema at some point will make a deal. And they're not against a deal, just has to be on their terms. And I think very much that the Democrats are looking at something that's better than nothing. So I, I predict there'll be a deal. It may not look, the bill that the Senate has may not look like the bill the House is sending them today. Okay. Um, and I know that uh, you were in on the, the happenings with Rahm Emanuel. He's waiting final confirmation on his uh, uh, Japan ambassadorship. Uh, he kind of backed up by Joe Ferguson this week as well. 
Uh, so what's what's the latest with Rom? Is he just in a holding pattern? Well, he is in a holding pattern for reasons having to do with Republicans. Isn't this ironic? Not the progressive Democrats who are against him. So our, just so our listeners know, there are two Republican senators, Josh Hawley of Missouri and Ted Cruz of Texas. They are putting a hold on most diplomatic appointments for reasons having nothing to do with Ram. So that's why there's no vote. He's out of committee. But it turns out, and this just surfaced yesterday, that the day after his hearing, the now former Inspector General of Chicago, Joe Ferguson, wrote a letter to Senator Bob Menendez, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, going through what he learned in his investigation of the Laquan McDonald incident and Rahm's role, if any, in withholding the release of the videos. He said it might not have been a great law at the time and rules, but Rahm followed the procedures. And Rahm's going to has enough votes to be confirmed because even if some Democrats fall out, he has plenty of Republicans. But uh, maybe this will provide some cover to Democrats in the Senate who need it to vote for him. It won't change any minds, I believe, of people in Chicago who think that Rahm didn't handle it properly. But it serves its purpose in the Senate. Um, Greg, I wanted to ask you, I guess this shows that uh, Joe Ferguson is a real stand-up kind of guy, right? I mean, they, they bumped heads and uh, back and forth over the years. But, you know, again, Rom never really didn't try to kick him out or anything. And here he is backing up Rom. Well, I've always found Joe to be a, uh, a man of integrity. Uh, I mean, Mr. Ferguson certainly, uh, uh, certainly, uh, like all of us, isn't perfect. Uh, but uh, uh, when he generally says something, he he believes it, um, uh, and he he tends not to fog it up with a bunch of outside factors and and, and, and prejudices and whatever. And he calls he's a good empire. He calls balls and strikes. And yes, he and Rom have they had their problems in the past. Yes, they worked it out. Uh, but uh, uh, he says that uh, that uh, his investigation did not indicate there was any culpability. I believe him. Yeah, I think Lynn's probably right. I, I, Rom's going to have the votes no matter what. Once uh, I don't know. What do you think, Heather? Well, I think it's um, going to be, I think, interesting to see if what somebody like Senator Bernie Sanders does. Um, uh, two progressive senators, uh, Jeff Merkley from Oregon and, and Ed Markey from Massachusetts, have already said that they plan to vote against Rahm Emanuel's nomination. I think that that could mean that progressive senators will feel obligated to join them. Now, he has so far five GOP senators who have, uh, have endorsed him, so he has enough wiggle room at this moment. I think Ferguson's letter is very interesting because it, it does it says he didn't cover up what happened to Laquan McDonald, but it very purposely does not let the former mayor off the hook for creating the situation that led to Laquan McDonald's police murder. And that he that Ferguson gives Rahm Emanuel credit for trying to reform the system, but his letter is silent on whether or not senators should vote for him simply, you know, because he presided over a city where we know that the constitutional rights of black and Latino Chicagoans were routinely violated. And the letter doesn't say anything about that. 
So um, it is consistent with what the former mayor has been saying all along since this began back in 2015 with the release of the dash cam video. But I think if you're a progressive senator, this does not address the central uh, push of of why progressives like uh, New York Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez wants Rahm Emanuel to be defeated simply because he led a police force that committed these sort of abuses and atrocities. And Ferguson's letter does not change those facts. Ray, your two cents? Is this, uh, this got to bode well for Rom? I, I think this is political inoculation for Rom. Uh, people can use it for political cover. They can uh, say, look, the former IG uh, who was there and butted heads with with uh, Rom has given this uh, a not a clean bill of health, maybe not even a good housekeeping seal, but it is uh, not a condemnation of what Rom does. And he says he basically follows the rules. Like Greg said, he's a stand-up guy, Joe Ferguson, and he has uh, called it the way he sees it, and he calls this one uh, in a sense of fairness to to Emmanuel, who is getting bashed by people who don't always know the facts. They just want to make more noise. Well, let's go into this now. Um, I know that... um there's this December 1st deadline for a new ward map in Chicago. And this week, uh, the mayor came out and kind of lit a fire under the butts of the aldermen, is how I would put it. Uh, Greg, uh, is, are her words going to uh, get these guys in motion? And, and are we going to see something by December 1st? Well, uh, for their for their sakes, it probably should. But you got a pretty good fight going here. Uh, this you have a you have a, a probably a, a, the equivalent of fifty three or or fifty four aldermen trying to stuck uh, trying to pack uh, fifty wards into into a bag that's too small. Uh, they can't. The, the, the core problem here is that the city's Latino population has expanded a lot, uh, and Latinos are kind of flexing their muscle and they say we want extra wards, and I understand why. At the same time, the city's African-American population continues to go down, and there's a lot of resistance though among black aldermen giving up spots. And meanwhile, the city's white population, because it has gone up a little bit, and because it's all concentrated in the center area of the city, that area is almost certainly going to pick up an extra population. So it so pretty much comes down to literally a game of musical chairs between the Black Caucus and Latino Caucus, and they haven't worked it out. And the hammer at their head, and I think the mayor was trying to remind them of that this week, is that hey, guys, under the law, if you don't work this out by December the 1st, any, any 10 aldermen can go and file their own map, uh, and, it, uh, and it goes to a referendum, and heaven knows what's going to happen then. All the bets are off, uh, because there could be other maps, and you know you could, you could lose your seats, and uh, guys, you really need to work this out for your own sakes. Um, I think they know that, but but they still whether that's going to be enough to to get them off the diamond do it don't know uh, they indeed are running out of time here. And Heather, did, what she kind of wanted this done out in the public. She wants enough time for public input too, right? Yeah, I think that is also going to be very hard to uh, ensure because we are 11 days from the deadline. We've got the Thanksgiving holiday um, coming up as well. And it's not clear to me what the mayor means when she says meaningful public input because 
she specifically said that it shouldn't happen like it did down in Springfield a few months ago where the map was introduced and a couple hours later had been approved with a final vote. However, um, as Greg rightly points out, uh, the Black Caucus and the Latino Caucus remain far apart. Um, and you've got a bunch of groups from Chicago's Asian American communities determined to ensure that a new ward combines Chinatown and Bridgeport to create Chicago's first ward with a majority of Asian American voters. So there are a lot of moving pieces, and it's a zero-sum game. If one ward is expanded in one way, that means another ward is going to shrink. And we heard Alderman Jason Urban, the chairman of the Black Caucus, say yesterday that the Latino Caucus's map guts the West Side by carving up um, neighborhoods there. So um, it, it's not clear to me how this all gets resolved. And you have to remember that we are dealing with the Chicago City Council that is, is very fractured and uh, votes on even the most routine things have routinely had more than 10 votes. And that's all that this process needs to send it to referendum in 2022. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's, it's just simple math. There cannot be 18 wards with a majority of black voters if you have 15 wards with a majority of Latino voters somebody's going to have to give and uh, nobody wants to wants to and whether or not they run out of time I think is an open question at this point yeah, I'll tell you how nasty this got in the, in the hearings this week. Uh, the the uh, chief map writer for the Latinos is a guy named Frank Calabrese. Well, he got grilled by the, uh, the by the head of the Black Caucus about, aren't you Republican? Oh. You know, uh, <laughs> sinful. And, and and Mr. Calabrese is in his thirties, kind of sheepishly admitted, that, "Well, yeah, when he was eighteen or nineteen, he came from a Republican family, and he follows Republican. But he's voted Democrat lately. Wants to everybody know, I, I would not commit heresy like that. That's how nitty picky this is." And they got Heather's right. They need to get off of this, or 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 they could all they could end up with a map that screws them all. It calls for uh, Dick Mel here all of a sudden for nine one one. Uh, or 800 Dick Mel here, the guy who used to uh, pull this stuff together when he was in the city council. And uh, not everybody wants the closed door sessions, but sometimes you see when you have this kind of fight going on out in the open, how difficult it is to pull these lines together in ways that, that people will eventually approve in, in a city council where uh, the musical chairs are changing. Well, who is the one then? That's a great point. I think I just want to take a moment and and, and say that Gray is 100% right, because in years past, this is something that has happened behind closed doors for good or for ill and has been run by Alderman Ed Burke, who, of course, is facing an indictment. He is pled not guilty, but he has been sidelined from these from this process. So the people operating this don't have the benefit that he does of having done this literally for the past 50 years. And I think there have been a lot of hiccups and that sort of lack of institutional knowledge and experience is certainly making a very fraught situation that much worse. Well, who should be the person then to pick up the ball and, and kind of work to get a, a deal done? Does the mayor have somebody that she could go to and say, you know, because she can't use Burke, obviously, right? Who can she go to who can carry this across the, the goal line? Well, she, so she doesn't really. She doesn't have anybody. I don't think. Do you, Heather? Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't either. Because she's and, and people don't trust her. And people don't trust the mayor herself because she has her own agenda. Yeah, 
she's either going to anger the Latino caucus by siding with the Black caucus, or she's going to anger the Black caucus by siding with the Latino caucus. Like I said, it's a zero-sum some game. And if the Black caucus says 18 words are bust and the Latino caucus says 15 words are bust, I, I don't know how you reach a compromise on that. It sounds like somebody's just going to miss out, and that's the way it's going to be in the end. <laughs> that's what it sounds like to me. Always is, yeah. Um, Dan Brady jumping into this uh, race to take over for Jesse White there at the Secretary of State's office. Um, you know, Ray Long, I uh, listened to the press conference uh, when he kicked off his, his election uh, campaign, and he kind of bashed the way the office is running, but I think Jesse White deserves a lot of credit for cleaning up after after uh, George Ryan and, and others uh, and kind of making the, the place more efficient. I, I would rather be at a secretary of state's office waiting on a driver's license than than getting a, a cavity filled at this point. <laughs> well, uh, the, the reality is that Jesse had kind of a rough landing when he took over for George Ryan. He he moved a few people around himself, and and uh, there were a few whistleblowers who who uh, uh, stepped up, and eventually he he did put in uh, Jim Burns as the uh, inspector general. Jim Burns being a former U.S. attorney, and uh, tried to straighten things out. Uh, as you know, George Ryan had left a trail of of uh, license uh, for bribes uh, scandals that where people throughout uh, the uh, licensing facilities had been squeezed to to uh, give more donations to Ryan and then it turns out that some of those donations uh, even included some bribe money so uh, we have now also uh, addressed things like longer lines, but the pandemic has been a, an issue here that has been a real uh, bugaboo. And as a result, um, Jesse is going to finish out with a pretty good record. But um, Dan Brady is interesting because he's a smart guy. He's from downstate. He hasn't made big ways, but he's one of these guys who tries to find solutions uh, in the legislature that has been dominated by Democrats. Of course, he's Republican. He doesn't have much name recognition in Chicago. He's going to need a lot of money to pull this off here because there's going to be a big Democratic primary world that will dominate the headlines. And then we'll um, see who's left standing, and Brady will have to, to if he survives the primary, uh, come up with a strategy to gain recognition and make hay out of what he's done. And uh, what he has been capable of doing has been limited by the fact that he's been in the minority party for years. You know, I tell you, though, um, if next year is a wave election uh, where uh, Republicans do as well nationally, it's, uh, it's, uh, mm -hmm. it's starting to look like they might. Um, I think Mr. Brady might be able to get somewhere with the, with the argument that, hey, Democrats own everything in this state. They, they own the legislature. They own the governor's mansion. Uh, 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 he couldn't he that be a little delicate saying that, but his way suggests you need a Republican here to keep an eye on the cookie jar. Mm. Might work. Is this the best way for Republicans to get somebody? This is probably the only office that they could really, at this point in time, even shoot for, right? Well, no. There's uh, there's some people shooting. It, it, it's 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 a vacant job, which is which is it's easier to 
to uh, right. take a, a vacant spot than it is to knock out an incumbent, which is why uh, uh, if they run somebody, for instance, against the, the state treasurer, Mike Frerich, that's probably a little more difficult. Um, uh, and I, it's, it's worth a shot, but Ray is right. He's going to need some money because nobody knows who Dan Brady is. Nice fellow, but outside of his testing, he's a, he's a complete unknown. You know, on the other hand, uh, the, the Democratic primary has really gotten kind of nasty. I have, a, I have a new column up, which you can read on our website, ChicagoBusiness.com, about the, some of the stuff that's going on. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's true Chicago hardball politics with a little bit of spit on the ball this time. Uh, uh, and that could have some latent carryover effect in the fall. We'll leave that for another time. Hold your breath. Hold your breath. Uh, <laughs> my thanks to Lynn Sweet of the uh, Chicago Sun-Times, Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune, Heather Sharon of WTTW Chicago Tonight, and Greg Hines of Crane Chicago Business. Up next, Kim Gordon. You're listening to Connected to Chicago on WLS. This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLS. The pandemic has made it tough for children of all ages to learn, but especially younger children. Joining me today is Angela Lampkin, director of Educare Chicago, to discuss preschool in the pandemic. Welcome to Connected to Chicago. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're glad you're here. So, Angela, what challenging times for anyone trying to teach children, but I'm sure this has been especially tough for preschool. How is that going? Well, um, Educare Chicago has really um, shifted gears to um, learn more about um, various health and safety practices that we can implement in our environment to keep children safe and mitigate the spread of a pandemic um, of COVID-19. We um, had to, you know, purchase a lot of different types of materials, support children in learning, you know, what it means to social distance, how to feel comfortable wearing a mask, um, also different ways that you can show affection um, with rather be your caregiver or um, your friend but because children don't understand things the same way adults. And so we had to do a lot of modeling, using children's literature, and then providing them alternative ways to express their feelings and, and happiness and, 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 and love and joy um, toward their peers. I know that Educare is in the Grand Boulevard neighborhood, and give us an overview really quickly, if you can, of what Educare is and why it's so important to this neighborhood for people who may not be familiar with, with your nonprofit. Educare is so important to the Grand Boulevard community because we are really committed to partnering with families to ensure the children that leave Educare are prepared for elementary school. That's our, you know, ultimate goal to ensure that children are school ready, um, as well as to really partner with families to support them in their endeavors and goals that they establish for themselves and for their family. Um, we pride ourselves at um, being innovative, um, implementing um, research-based practices that have proven to support children's um, both academic and social-emotional growth. And again, doing that um, while teaching parents that they're their child's first and primary teacher and helping parents along the way to be self-sufficient and to be advocates for themselves um, and their families. Any other plans to expand to other Chicago neighborhoods? 
Um, at this time, I'm not aware of um, any expansion um, plans um, for um, Start Early and Educare um, Chicago. We um, are great partners with other um, agencies through our Head Start and Early Head Start federally funded grant. So we do um, partner with others in our um, goal of implementing comprehensive Head Start and Early Head Start services. Great. Well, Angela, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate your time. And thank you so much um, for inviting me to participate in this interview. And that'll do it for this week's Connected to Chicago. My thanks again to reporters Ray Long of the Tribune, Greg Hines of Cranes, and Heather Sharon of WTTW. Also, thanks to Matt Mellon for his technical assistance. I'm Nick Gale, 890 WLS News. Connected to Chicago, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com.